Let's turn our Bibles together to Psalm 127 as we continue studying the Psalms of Ascent. You want to receive help on where to find Psalm 127? You can turn in the black Bibles that are in the seats in front of you to page 518. As you all read and study the Bible in your individual lives, I would like to share a little tip. The tip is to never assume that you know what the passage is saying, even if you've studied it before. The psalm we're about to read is one of the more familiar psalms in the 150 psalms that we have in front of us. I don't know about you, but when you look at the first few verses, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it in labor in vain, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Growing up in church, I've heard these words maybe a thousand times. So when things are familiar to you, sometimes you have the tendency to assume you know what they mean. And so this week, I was freshly reminded of the importance of not assuming that when you open a text of Scripture that you already have in mind what it's saying before actually going into the Word and finding out what it's actually saying. This is kind of Bible 101 for everyone. Go into the Word with a mind of saying, God, what are you saying in this context? And let me really find out what you're saying rather than put meaning into the passage that I already had in mind to begin with. Do you see the difference between those two? Sometimes the differences can seem very subtle and hard to discern, but they are a world of a difference. Here at Embassy Church, the task that I have tried to tell you that is given to the preacher is to do that week in and week out. And by God's strange providence, I was led down an unexpected path of this passage. So I don't think that at the end of the day, the interpretation or thoughts that I had going into it were wrong or unbiblical. I'm just not sure that they were exactly what God's word meant to say to us from Psalm 127. And so I had the choice to make. Do I just go with what I had preconceived notions or do we go with what God said? Well, I'm going to give the attempt of arguing for what I believe God's saying in Psalm 127. And let's see if you follow me down this path as we read this psalm together and look at its implications for our lives. Psalm 127, a song of ascent of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So what do you assume this passage is saying? Did you already have assumptions as you first read it? Does it seem pretty straightforward and clear to you? That's kind of what I assumed. Seems pretty straightforward and clear psalm. But I started asking lots of questions, and the more I asked questions, the digger I was 
the deeper I was digging and realizing, you know, some of these things aren't as clear as I had thought. So, for example, let's just give the initial assumption that I had when I read this passage. First, you notice that this is another song of ascents, but it's the only song that says these words of Solomon. You notice that? We've seen a couple of these psalms say of David, but this is the only one that says of Solomon. In fact, there's only two psalms in all the 150 that have some inscription from Solomon. Now, this often clues people to think Solomon wrote this. Now, that's not necessarily true. This word of Solomon could either be of, like he wrote it by Solomon, or it could mean that it's dedicated to, like David, who's written a lot of the psalms, dedicated this psalm to Solomon. But the majority of scholars think that Solomon was likely the author of this psalm, and so they start to take the words of Solomon in other scriptures and quickly run to Ecclesiastes, which is often thought of as Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes. And if any of you know anything about Ecclesiastes, the word that's repeated more than any other word in the book of Ecclesiastes is vanity of vanities. And so, I heard several different commentators or preachers kind of pick up on that and say, unless the Lord builds the house, you build it and labor in vain. Like, meaningless of meaningless. It's, it's like the book of Ecclesiastes. And so, that's what Solomon's saying here. But friends, I think one of the things you need to realize is that the word in Ecclesiastes that is translated meaningless or vanity is the word havel in Hebrew. This word is not that word. That word means a mere breath or vapor. Like it comes and goes. It's like a mist, and your life is just a mist. And so Solomon says throughout all of this, what is our life really all about if God's not on the throne? It's just a big mist. It just comes and goes. It's a big cycle in turn, like the changing of the seasons. You guys live, and then you die, and no one's going to remember you. It's a really bleak book. If you've ever read it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Ecclesiastes, the mere vapor breath of life. But that's not the word used here, and that's not the theme of this psalm, at least the more you think about it. The word here is the Hebrew word shav, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And now, if you were to join me in my studies through the Scriptures, which I will not spend all of the time, but there's a 57 times this word shav is used in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament. So if you go through every single instance, you'll find that there's two categories of the way this word is used. One is to talk about empty speech or words that have no meaning in them, like falsehood or lies, or this is actually the same word in the Ten Commandments, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, shav. But the other way that this word is used, and I think it's in this context that this is referring to, because this isn't about speech, this is about building and watching and working and waking up early and staying up late. This isn't about speech vanity, This is about work vanity. And so, watch what happens when we take a few examples of the way other scriptures use this word shav. Jeremiah 2.30. Now, friends, you never know what's going to happen, but the projector was supposed to present all of these for you so you didn't have to flip through them. 
You can just jot these down. We're not going to spend time in them. I just want you to see a few examples of how shav is used in other parts of the Old Testament. Jeremiah 2.30. Listen closely. In vain I punished your people, and they did not respond to my correction. The punishment was what is in vain in this context because it did not produce the result of correction. Not responding to the correction is, well, that was a waste. And I'm sure no parent has ever felt that before, right? We'll get to that in a minute. Malachi chapter 3, verse 14. You have been arrogant because you have said it is in vain to worship and serve God. What profit is it to keep his requirements and walk mournfully before the Lord of hosts? God, through the prophet of Malachi, is looking at his people and saying, you are proud and you are arrogant. And they say, how are we proud and arrogant? Because you keep saying that your worship and service to God is not profiting you anything. It is vain. So the result, the end goal of worship in the mind of the Israelites would have been profit. I want to see some good come out of this worship and service to God. But in their limited perspective, they're saying, I'm not seeing it right now. And so they're thinking this worship is useless. Another example, Psalm 60, verse 11. Oh, give us help against the adversary, for deliverance by man is vain, but through God we shall gain the victory. Do you see the the contrast here? Deliverance is the result that these people are longing for, but they know any effort made purely by human effort will not succeed. God will provide the victory And so, therefore, any efforts apart from God are vain efforts for deliverance. Think of the story in the book of Judges of Gideon. Do you remember that story where God tells Gideon, you have too many soldiers? In fact, he had 22,000 soldiers. And he said, if you win with 22,000 soldiers because you have so many people, you will become boastful and say that it was because of our power that we saved ourselves. So he said, I would like you to weed out the soldiers, and they ended up with how many? 300. What a wonderful picture of Psalm 60 verse 11 and the vanity of relying on your own power and strength for deliverance when only the Lord is the one who can bring the deliverance. Finally, Jeremiah 46 verse 11. In vain you have used many medicines but there is no healing for you. In a long list of words on judgment, you hear this word of judgment saying, you have been trying to be healed, that's the desired result, but in vain you have tried all the different medicines, but God has ordained you will not get healing. doesn't matter what medicines you use. Think of the story of the woman who for 18 years was bleeding and couldn't stop the bleeding, went to every sort of doctor she could go to. In the story of the Gospels, and then she touches Jesus, and bleeding is done. In vain, she went all through her life spending all that she had to try and get the bleeding to stop. But until the Lord brought the healing, there would be no healing through the doctors. So if we go back 
to Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, I think we will see that this psalm is primarily about the resultlessness of human effort apart from God and the lack of success that vanity is describing. So, read verses 1 and 2 with these contexts in mind. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. I think the way to translate this word vain is to say that it is resultless, it is restless sort of work. This is what it means, a failure to obtain success. You have an end goal. So in the first illustration, the builders, their goal is to build a house. Maybe a temple because of the Solomon connection. We can't know for sure. The point is clear. Their aim is to build something, but if the Lord is not in it, it will not be built. A good illustration of this, I believe, would be in Genesis chapter 11. Do you remember what happened in Genesis chapter 11? All of these people conspire together to say, let's make our name great. And so they want to build a tower in a large city. And what happens? God looks down and sees what they could do if they were all together in the same language, but he dispersed them as an act of judgment for their pride and spread them out all over the face of the earth. And the building of the city and tower stopped. They built They were starting to build. They were starting to make plans, but the Lord directed their steps and had a different plan. If the Lord is not building the house, then the building is in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. They would like to have protection over the city. But if the Lord does not provide the protection, then it does not matter how many watchmen you have or how long they stay awake The Lord is the one that ultimately brings the protection over the city, not merely just the efforts of men. So what we see in verse 1 is resultless vanity. In verse 2, we see restless vanity. In vain you rise up early and go too late, go Go too late, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. This verse is a difficult one to translate, and so there's been a variety of commentary debates on how to best understand it. I would provide this suggestion. What's being said here is you would like to provide food for your family. So, in Your human effort, you wake up early and you stay up late. You lose sleep, you put in extra hours, but this passage is saying you are wasting good sleep. You do not need to work extra in the morning or stay up late to get food because God will provide for his people and bless them, and this is part of the translation difference, not because he gives them sleep, but because he gives to them while they sleep. That's the different translation. So God gives and provides, you can go to bed, 
You do not need to stay up all night, every night, trying to work yourself into a crazy frenzy because, oh no, what's going to happen? God's in control. The world will still be revolving when you wake up tomorrow morning. If you planted seed yesterday, he will see to it that through his provision, he will make it grow in its due time. So go to bed and rest. You see the difference? If you stay up fretting and worrying, if you decide, well, I'm going I'm to keep massaging the soil a little longer. I'm going to just keep making sure my, that you're wasting your human effort. You're laboring in vain. Just go to sleep. I think this is why we had the Old Testament reading from Haggai chapter 1. Did you not see these people working hard to provide food? But God, in his judgment, said, no, it doesn't matter how much seeds you sow. Because you have not considered the priority of my house, you will receive drought and famine and nothing will grow. See the vanity of their efforts? So, these are the first two lessons from verses 1 and 2. Resultless and restless. Then we have a strange transition to verse 3. At this point, another debate happens. Why in the world are we talking about children and wombs and arrows and quivers? What in the world is going on here? Many people suggest that these are two different poems and then they just were conveniently put together. I want to argue that this psalm makes perfect sense as it flows from verses 1 to, to 3. Three connections from verses 1 and 2 and 3, 4, and 5. The first connection is the word house. See that in verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house? Well, did you know if you read your Bible thoroughly, study it carefully, you will realize that the word house, the same word here, is several times, not just a few times, but several times translated as home. One of the most famous examples is between David and Solomon, in fact, which should perk our ears. Oh, yeah. A psalm either written by David for his son Solomon or a psalm written by Solomon. One of the most important passages in all of the Old Testament comes in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when after David wants to build a house for God, he uses this word house, and he means literal house, like a temple, a building. But God promises him a house. And in the context, he's not talking about a house, a temple, but a family. He's promising him a home. And so one of the most famous examples of the most important passages in the Old Testament has the contrast between building house and building family. So more than likely, there is a connection between verses 1 and 2 and verse 3 when we see this talk of children. The second connection is the word builder in verse 1 as well. Those who build labor in vain, it almost sounds identical. It's like, is that called homophones when the words sound the same? So you have builder word and you have children word, which is literally sons, almost sound identically the same. So you've got this connection between the house, you've got this word association connection with children and building. And then thirdly, does working, protecting, and providing have nothing to do with raising a family? Building, protecting, providing, 
aren't these the essential things of what it means to raise children? To see verses 1 and 2 is completely distant from verses 3, 4, and 5, I think just does so many disservices to this psalm. For example, any parents ever work really, really hard at trying to see your children come to some specific result, and you don't get it. And you feel like, man, that's hard work, and my labors, they feel like they've been in vain. Any parents ever try to protect their kids, do everything they can to make sure they eat right, sleep right, wear the right things, don't get too close to the street, put the helmet on, and and this is constantly the thing you're doing with little children all the time. But unless the Lord is watching over and protecting all of our efforts, even though they're good, and He will use the means of our efforts, if it's not the Lord's will, then it's in vain. Any parents ever tried to provide for their kids, but you never seem like you have enough and you want to provide more? Oh, if only I could give more and do this and give them this uh, opportunity. These three themes most definitely flow to the raising of children in verses 3, 4, and 5. Additionally, we see that this psalm is about the resultlessness when God's not in it, the restlessness of when God's not in it, and then look at verse 3. The fruitlessness if God's not in it. There will be no children if God does not open and give the womb children. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. They are a blessing. We should see children as not something that we can just biologically create whenever we want, and it's just biological processes. We should be well aware that God, through His Word, has explained that He is the one who opens and closes the womb. He is the one who gives gifts that are children. We should see that these children are blessings, that they are like arrows, and blessed is the man who has a whole quiver full of them. If you don't understand what this illustration is referring to, the quiver would have been a sack of arrows. And the arrow would have been used in the hand of a warrior, and oftentimes preachers, I think, want to use this as an illustration of, well, what do you do with arrows? You shoot them. And so what we got to do is we got to spend all of our time making sure that the arrows are nice and straight, so that way when you let them go and release them, you want to make sure they shoot straight. I've heard that at least a dozen times. I don't know if you have. I don't even think that's what it means. I think it preaches well, yeah, make sure your kids are straight, (laughs) But is that what the passage is saying? The passage, I think, is actually telling you that in God's economy and plan for Israelites, in particular in this time, children are the blessing of your retirement plan, and children are your life insurance. They will protect you. The children of your youth, meaning if you have children young, then you will be alive when they are older, and they will protect you when you go in front of your enemies at the gate, for example you got a whole bunch of big, strong boys, and you're an old man that people could take advantage of, they ain't going to take advantage of you. You see, see what's going on here? If you have strong young men, then they can help you and protect you and take care of you. And this was the norm for young Israelite families. Have lots of kids, especially sons. The word here, like I mentioned, is the word sons. Behold, sons are a heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb. And we know that all children, both sons and daughters, are a blessing from God. 
But in order to understand verse 5, I think we need to realize that this arrow is the idea of protection. It's like a warrior's arrow that these children are going to be used to protect and provide and care for the man when he gets older. So, there's our psalm. Like I said, I wasn't necessarily expecting that it would take me down that path. But now that we're here, what are three applications for us? First, how do you view children? Do you view children as a blessing from God or only certain children as blessings from God? Do you view children as a gift that comes from God and God alone and that every one you get, if you have one, you should be thankful for? Genesis 20, verse 18, For the Lord closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech. Genesis 29, 31, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb. God opens and closes the womb in his sovereign purposes. We are not obligated to deserve children. This is not some right that we have or some sort of thing that we can control. We are not in control. The man-centered view of the world is this is just a biological reproduction, and we can do any sort of way to manipulate that process. God is ultimately the one in control of those processes. So therefore, if you have a child, know that God has given them as a blessing. Do not see them as cramping your style or getting in the way or the children's ministry as that annoying week during the month that I've got to serve and take care of the kids when I really want to be in the church service. We should view children as a wonderful blessing, as the people that we would want to raise up for those that will protect us, care for us in our old age, protect the gospel, the church, and care for the next generation What a wonderful gift that God has given this church, as Eddie mentioned earlier, many, many children. We are rich with his blessing. Therefore, let's thank God for them, help them, serve in the children's ministry, be eager and wanting to help in these ways, and see them as the blessing that they are. That's the main point of this passage, but when you're belaboring the main point of this application about the wonderful blessing that children are, think we should be sensitive and weep with those who cannot have children or have tried or have lost children recently. We should love our brothers and sisters who desperately want those blessings and for whatever reason, because maybe they haven't been married yet or they've tried and they are married or they've lost children. May this be a church that recognizes the incredible blessings that children can be and therefore all the more empathetic to those that can't enjoy those blessings, at least in their immediate family. Thankfully, we have a church family, so adopt these children if you can't have your own biological children. Adopt children from outside of this church or those that you could pursue knowing and building relationships with. I don't know any other better words of encouragement for those of you that might be suffering in this particular way, In the words of the great poem, God moves in mysterious ways. So do not judge the Lord by your feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind this frowning providence hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast. They unfold every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err, 
as we scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. I encourage you, brothers and sisters, whatever your trials might be, if it's currently today, not one of losing or inability to have children, know that blind unbelief is sure to err, and as we scan his work and as it unfolds every hour, the bud may have a bitter taste. But as we see and step back and see God's grand purposes, we know he will make it plain and sweet will be the flower. Which brings us to our second application. How do you view God? First, we ask, how do you view children? And do you see them as an incredible blessing from God? Well, first and foremost, I think we need to make sure we understand who is the God of Psalm 127. Do you believe that God is in control? That he is the ultimate reason behind all reasons and actions? As the scriptures say, the nations ask, where is their God? And we respond, our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Or as the prayer in Daniel, all the inhabitants of the earth are as nothing. And he does according to his will among all the hosts of heaven and in all the inhabitants of the earth. No one can stay his hand. No one can stop his hand. No one can say to God, what have you done? Or as the Proverbs say, and I think this is a good parallel to Psalm 127. This is a wisdom psalm, and Proverbs are wisdom words. And those words in the book of Proverbs say, The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord is the one who establishes his steps. We make plans to build, we make plans to protect, we make plans to work, but it is the Lord who establishes our steps. Who's the ultimate one that is in control of every detail of our life, including two sparrows being sold for a penny? How worthless are they? But God knows every single one of them that falls down. Every single hair of your head is numbered. The words of Jesus, sovereignly, intimately knowing every detail of our life. So therefore, we should be humbled, friends. Humbled to know that you're not in control of tomorrow. James chapter 4 gives us a stern warning about this, doesn't it? Today or tomorrow, you say you will go to such and such place. You will spend a year here, make a profit. You do not know where you will be tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, I will go do this. Is our perspective of God that we're not in control, that He is? He's the sovereign one on the throne of the universe, and therefore we need to trust that God's plans are the ones that will be accomplished, and ours may not. You will plan. You will make plans. You will hope to fulfill those plans. But unless the Lord is in them, they will not happen. Do you have a God-centered view of the world? And has this humbled you? Lamentations says, Who has spoke, and it come to pass, unless the Lord commanded it? Every single word that you have spoke. Who has spoke unless the Lord has commanded it? Lamentations continues, Is not from the mouth of the Most High both the good and the bad? One 
commentator on Psalm 127 says, the minds of men are so commonly possessed with such headstrong arrogance that they despise God and magnify beyond measure their own means and advantage. Nothing is of more important than to be humbled under God's hand in order to bring in order to their being made to perceive that whatever they undertake, it shall dissolve into smoke unless God is in the exercise of pure grace to cause it to prosper. Do you understand that whatever plans you have will be smoke unless God causes them to prosper? You know, one of the interesting meditations about this whole theme of God being sovereignly in control and us failing to acknowledge this and view the world this way, is you remember in Romans chapter 1 where Paul is talking about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven and all of the unrighteousness that is on the earth? Do you realize that God's wrath is coming down on the unrighteousness on the earth because, first thing that's explained, for they did not acknowledge God or give thanks to Him. And their minds were futile in their thinking. I wonder how many of us are not acknowledging God today. Do you have a, a, just a biological, man-centered view of the world? Like this happens because of this, and this happens because of this. Now, a lot of times, in normal wisdom, those things are true. And we should work, and we should work to protect our children and do all of these things. But at the end of the day, if you think you're in control of the results of your parenting or in control of the protection of your children or your house, you are mistaken. You are not in control of anything in an ultimate determined sense. Realize that there are always in the scriptures two ways to describe all the events that happen. There is a human perspective that we can explain, well, this happened because I did this. But ultimately, first and foremost, that happened because God allowed it to happen. I hope, friends, that this view of God does not cause you to hate God, but love Him and cherish Him and be in all of Him all the more. To know that not one single house is built unless the Lord has allowed it to be built. Question number three. How do you now view the church and the gospel that we proclaim. We are told that we are not the ones building Christ's church. So again, if you go back to this psalm and you know that it's of Solomon and that there's many who think that this is talking about the building of Solomon's temple. And we know that in the New Testament, the temple is done away with, that Jesus' body is the new temple. And so therefore, the church is his body here on earth. We are the new temple in the New Testament under the New Covenant. Are we the one building this temple? Are we the one building this house, His church? Matthew chapter 16, after Jesus confesses, after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Did you know that image of the gates of hell not prevailing against it is not that as the enemy attacks, our gates will stand strong. No, no, Jesus Christ will, five beautiful words, I will build my church, and the gates of hell, their gates will fall down. He will build the church, 
And as the kingdom of God advances throughout all the nations of the world, there will be nothing that can stop his plan. Do you understand how encouraging it is to know that if our God is that big sovereign God, that nothing happens apart from his plan, and we get promises that he says, I will build my church, I will declare my glory to all of the nations, then you and I, friend, should have great confidence in this ministry that we have, that it is not ultimately our work in the end of things. Again, two ways to describe things. Do we need to care, love for, share the gospel, disciple others, and be busy with the work of the Lord? Yes. Are you ultimately the one changing hearts, saving lives, growing his church, expanding it to the nations? Oh no. Not for a second should you think that you are the one that is so desperately needed and God is so glad that he saved you. This is the way we think. We're man-centered. We want the glory to be toward us, not to us, but to his name be all glory and praise. This is how he has ordained every event in history that all of us will be able to say, not to us, but to your name be the glory. He must become greater. We must become less. We have a job of taking dead people and making them alive. Anyone want to volunteer for that? Yeah, I can do that. No, you can't. We, in our own human strength, if you want to try and resuscitate dead spiritual beings, vanity, vanity, fruitless vanity, it will not work. But if the Lord is going to make someone alive, and he's going to bless through the preaching of his gospel, your words through your mouth, then he will change hearts and lives. We will be those that are giving spiritual CPR to dead people lying all over these towns. That's what they are. Non-Christian people need CPR because they need resuscitated and dead. They're dead. And all we can do is breathe the words of God into their mouth, into their life. And by God's grace, some of them come up and say, I'm made alive. So, the gospel work that is given to our church is fully and finally in the hands of God. As 1 Corinthians chapter 3 so eloquently puts by the Apostle Paul, we sow the seed, we water the seed, but God gives the growth. Are you encouraged this morning that the task that's given to us in this church is to rest finally and fully in a sovereign God who will build His church and His gospel will prevail And the reason why any of you are Christians this morning is not because you loved God, but because He first loved you. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come this morning with grateful, thankful hearts. What a great big God you are. How awesome it is to know that there is not one hair on our head that you do not know. How awesome to know that every blade of grass that's growing outside, each individual blade, you're well aware of. You're taking care of it. God, what a wonderful truth for us to meditate on, to believe in, to find hope in. 
And so I pray, God, that you would give all of us the grace of trusting fully in your sovereign purposes and plans and that we will see the vanity and the futile efforts of men to try and work apart from your will. Give us your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have been made alive because of the